Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. And welcome to another premium episode for Conspiracy Unlimited Plus members. Thank you, as always, for your support. We're going to talk about the battle or the great war of Gog and Magog. Ali Siadatan is with us. He is the founder of Think Again Productions, a multimedia teaching ministry shedding light on mysteries and treasures of scriptural knowledge, which is making the Bible more real than ever. And Ali has found evidence keeps agreeing with the Bible's tale from biblical cities peering through the sand to alien abductions and other prophetic events. And uh, Ali's website is thinkagainproductions.com. Thinkagainproductions.com. Ali, welcome back. How are you? Fine. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. The Battle of Gog and Magog. This is, yeah. this is a prophecy uh, that appears, is it Ezekiel 38, 39? Yes, that's right. And, and Ezekiel lived 2,500 years ago. 
Right. So the question is, are we seeing the coming together? In, in the prophecy, there is a coming together, a coalition of tribes or nations which will attack Israel. And uh, that is known as the Battle of Gog and Magog. So what, what does the prophecy actually say? What does Ezekiel 38, 39 actually say? It paints the picture of a coalition of nations coming together. Um, they, they are pulled into a great war against uh, Israel by God. Um, they're defeated miraculously by God himself. And the ma multitude of armies are buried uh, in these mountains near Israel. The address is given. Um, God is, you know, glorified um, in, in the sight of, of people in this miraculous victory. Um, so it, it's part of this body of literature that we see uh, where starting as old, I would say, as the writings of King David about 3,000 years ago, there is, like King David talks about, you know, why do the nations rage and gather against God and his Messiah, his anointed one. Um, other writings such as um, Zechariah chapter 14 is a very famous one that describes all the nations gathering in Jerusalem and then the Messiah intervenes and ushers a new stage of history. There's Joel, uh, Joel I think is chapter 2 or 3, that talks about all these nations gathering the Valley of Judgment. Um, there's the famous prophecy of the Battle of Armageddon, the book of Revelation, uh, and the coming of the armies of God from heaven. So there's this kind of picture the prophetic scriptures paint for us that there will come a day where, you know, Israel becomes as a nation again in the Middle East, and Jerusalem becomes, again, a hot topic in the world somehow. And then these nations gather um, uh, against it, and they're defeated by God himself. Uh, this, this, is, this is a theme that we see in, in these prophetic writings. And even in this passage of Ezekiel 38-39, if you kind of look at where it sits, in the scroll of Ezekiel, before that we've got chapter 36 and chapter 37. Chapter 36 tells the great story of a massive regathering of the Jewish people to this covenant land and the revival of the land. The land becomes blessed again because of their presence. The uncultivable, you know, uh, arid desert type of land becomes again full of farms. And the cities become inhabited. Um, and Perhaps so, the, the the greatest prophecy in 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 the Bible that basically foretells the impossible. Yeah, the, the coming together of modern state of Israel twenty five hundred years after Ezekiel. Exactly, uh, exactly, and 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 even the city of Tel Aviv is named Tel Aviv apparently because Ezekiel, when he was in exile in in Mesopotamia lived in a city of called Tel Aviv, and it is to honor this prophecy. So Tel means mound, and it implies like an archaeological mound, like something ancient. Aviv, Aviv means spring, like water springing. The idea is that from something ancient, something new has sprung, but also it's the name of the town where Ezekiel was living, who wrote the great prophecy. And so there is this great return, and then afterwards, you know, in the next chapter, chapter 37, we see the Valley of Dried Bones, of this massive spiritual revival. Uh, and some people even say, point to the Holocaust and all the dry bones, you know, something, you know, came out of it. So, 
um, but definitely there is this motif of spiritual revival, and that's one of the conditions of the second coming. Jesus said that he wouldn't return to the earth until his people, like in the context of the gospel, the Jewish people, asked for it, asked for him. And he, you know, he said he won't come back until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. And so there is this, this spiritual revival mentioned in the next chapter, and then we've got chapter 38 and 39, this kind of apocalyptic war that God himself intervenes in, in, in which fits in this series uh, of literature, of this prophetic painting. And then in chapter 40, we have the architecture of the temple out of which the Messiah will rule the world when he returns, will rule all the nations. He will rule from the city of Jerusalem and, and the, a temple will be built from where he will rule and the architecture of that temple is in the 40th chapter of the scroll of Ezekiel. So so it's part of kind of this part of the scroll that has this incredible motif that could apply to our time, the return of the Jewish people, spiritual revival, uh, a great apocalyptic war that uh, you know that in which God intervenes and fits in this whole body of literature that ushers in the new messianic kingdom and finally the temple out of which the messiah reigns that's kind of where this uh this prophecy is located right and and so there are as you pointed out there are three three great wars that really define the modern state of israel right right so the first world war was interesting because this land, this covenant land, um, it was taken by Rome. And it was part of kind of God's plan because from the beginning God put his hand on this piece of land and, and promised that to Abraham and brought the Jewish people out of Israel, the, the ancient Hebrews, out of Egypt, sorry. Out of Egypt, he called them. And, and everyone knows the story of, uh, that's in the Bible. And eventually the Romans come in 70 AD. They destroy the Temple of Jerusalem. And they capture the land. And in 134-35 AD, there is this rebellion of the Jewish people who try to take it back. The Bar Kokhba Rebellion. That is defeated by Rome. And at that point, they changed the name to Philistina, which was a neighboring tribe of the Jewish people, as, as, as a way of saying, just forget this land, don't come back to it. And they build the Temple of Jupiter on the Temple Mount, which was then you know, replaced by the Dome of the Rock. And so this kind, they renamed the city Jerusalem Aela Capitolina, the city of the gods of Rome, uh, of the gods of the capital. So they kind of, there's a spiritual takeover, there's physical takeover, and the land of the covenant disappears into the Roman Empire until the 7th century when Islam rises and, and, and takes it from Rome. And now it becomes part of the system of caliphates, the various you know, Islamic uh, empires until the Ottoman Caliphate is the uh, one who owns the land. And now we are in 1917, where uh, General Allenby walks through the gates of Damascus, and that is really the moment the Ottoman Empire falls. Uh, Damascus is a very important city to the Ottoman Empire. And the land is now taken from the Ottomans and given to the British. Now, why is it that the British are entangled in the war with the Ottomans? Because World War One, and the Ottomans have sided with the Germans. And so the Ottoman Caliphate gets divided between the French, the English, um, and so uh, the land becomes part of the British um, imperial system. 
And there is a man in the Parliament of England, Lord Balfour, and the Balfour Declaration, which happens in 1917, says that a portion should be given back to Jewish people. And um, uh, Baron Rothschild has that original. It was given to him as a representative of the Jewish people in England, and he still has it, uh, the original declaration. And so the World War One is what suddenly brings this land out of the grips of the great power. I mean, the Ottoman Empire and the Muslim world is a very important, powerful uh, entity, and it's kind of pulled out. And then the Second World War comes along, and the Holocaust happens. In the Holocaust, this great tragedy, um, they um, it does two things. One, for a moment, after the Holocaust, in the horror of it, all the nations gather together in the League of Nations, which is kind of the ancestor of the, of the United Nations, and they, they vote that there should be a Jewish homeland and the land should be returned from the British to the Jewish people. And that is voted on in November of 1947. So, um, the and then the other thing the Second World War achieves is that it kind of reminds a lot of European uh, Jews that that the idea of having a land in which you control the government and the army is a very important thing because of 2,000 years of persecution. You know, there was this guy, his name was Herzl, and he came up with this idea, the Zionism. But actually, a lot of the Jewish people in Europe didn't follow it. But the Holocaust changed their mind. And, and suddenly now they, they agreed that this was an important thing. So that was the Second World War. In 1947, the land is given. And then in 1967, one of these miraculous wars happens where five different uh, Arab countries attack Israel. And actually the leader is Nasser from Egypt, who is a secular socialist. There's a lot of secular socialist leaders. This is not an Islamic battle. This is a socialist secular battle. They attack Israel and they are defeated in six days, right? And it, it's not called the Six-Day War. Uh, I forget who it was, I think it was uh, Moshe Dayun or someone who called it the Six-Day War as a remembrance of the miraculous creation of the world recorded in the first chapter of the, of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah. That this was this battle was as miraculous as that event. How could have this happened? As part of that battle, Jerusalem, which was taken by Rome in 70 A.D., in 1967, became part of Israel again, was returned to the Jewish Commonwealth. And interestingly, 1967 is 50 years after 1917. And in the laws of God, 50 is the year of Jubilee, when all inheritance is returned to the original owner. So if you, if you owned a piece of land and you couldn't pay your debt and you became someone else's indentured servant to pay your debt, once the 50 years came, the year of Jubilee, everything is set back to default. All the debts are forgiven. You go back to your land. And so that's interesting. So they that is important because all these prophecies seem to point to the city of Jerusalem. And suddenly, since 1967, we can now take literally the actual prophetic painting that these ancient prophets left for us. There is once again an actual nation uh, of Israel. Right. Once again, the city of Jerusalem is in the hands of the Jewish people, and there is this immense contention around them about it, and in the whole world, actually. And some of these prophecies come to life. This is the fulfillment now, of Ezekiel 36, right? 
yeah, it's fulfilling of Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 23, um, Isaiah 11. There are many passages that talk about the second regathering of the Jewish people, even even as old as the book of Deuteronomy talked about it. So um, that that God would regather and heal and redeem. And so this is this is interesting. Now, why is this all happening? And what's the, kind of the bigger context that I think we should kind of keep in mind as we dive into Ezekiel 38 and 39? The bigger context is that there is a spiritual battle. Um, there is a war of angels because God, the story of the Bible, places the human race as part of a very large cosmic saga. Adam is born already in a creation that has other beings. And these beings, you know, have their own agenda, and humanity is dragged into this massive war, essentially, um, because Adam is the image bearer of God, and he wants to carry out evil. Um, he's, he's created to carry out God's instructions into the created order and represent God. And one of the angels wants this honor for himself. There's a rebellion among angels, and God then puts together a plan of redemption for the human race. God is going to heal the world. He's going to bring back a utopia, essentially, into the earth. He's not just going to save the souls of humans, but he's going to redeem the physical planet and take away the Age of Empire, arrest these dark forces that are behind the whole thing, and usher in a new age where it'll be peaceful, It'll be glorious, it'll be righteous, it'll be like a, a utopia. This is called the Messianic Kingdom. And there's more passages about it than anything else. And so when God puts his hand on Israel as his servant, as the tribe through which he will bless all the nations, and, and put them through this adventure, and he puts his hand on this land, and then explains that the return of these people leads to the coming of this Messianic Kingdom, this angelic force now seeks to break scripture and stop the fulfilling of this word of God and continue its rulership over the human race. So this war is not a normal war. These wars are mentioned in, in prophecy, not because God is just like, hey, I'm going to give you a piece of geopolitics. It's fun. Talk about it. It's because it's the climactic moment of a great battle that began the Garden of Eden that results in the complete defeat of a dark force and the ushering in of a new age for humanity, a utopia. And so these dark forces are attacking Israel, not because, you know, let's, let's, go, let's go attack Israel, but because Israel essentially is fulfilling God's word. What they're attacking is the spirit that's behind it. The right. If you take down Israel, in, their, in this logic, you will forestall the, the second coming and the fulfillment exactly. of the messianic age. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. 
Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal, but if you want more, listen to the dead files wherever you get your podcasts. Exactly. So then let's let's talk about this I don't know, is the this battle Gog and Magog that is prophesied in Ezekiel 38:39 is this the final battle? Is this Armageddon before Jesus rules the peaceful kingdom for a thousand years? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that Hebrew prophetic writings are designed to be a pattern. Um, in the Greek thinking, was, oh, well, what is the fulfillment of this one prophecy? But actually, the Hebrew prophetic is more like, um, there was a Bible scholar, his name was Chuck Mister, who used to say prophecies pattern. And that is how the Hebrew uh, mind has written this Bible. It's prophecies pattern. There is an overlap between the motifs that are mentioned in this prophecy and in all of these wars, which is the final great battle. Um, so, you know, the, we talked about the two world wars that we have already lived, but apparently there's going to be a third world war, according to the Bible. And that one is going to usher in the Messianic Age because Jesus himself will intervene during that war. And so is this prophecy the same as all the prophecies in the Bible that mention this great war? Well, I think that they're overlapping motifs. However, there is very distinct features to this writing that may distinguish it from that one. And again, scholars debate this. Some believe that it's the same. Others believe that it's two distinct ones. And again, I don't know. We, no one really knows for sure until it happens. Um, and so I'm going to take the position just for, for argument's sake that it is a distinct one, that it's not the same. And I'll tell you why. Uh, because of the details that are given. First of all, a coalition of nations is given. Even though this is a vast coalition of nations, it is not all the nations. It's not the imperial system of the world. This is not the one led by eventually the king of the king of the nations, the, the counterfeit messiah, the antichrist. This is, I think it's something else. It says that the word of God came to me saying, Son of man, set your face towards Gog of the land of Magog, chief prince Meshach and Tubal. And what are these places? And there's a lot of debate about that. You know, so Gog is a person, uh, perhaps, uh, but also it may be a place. It is the, the central city, the central place of the land of Magog. You know, it's like the Gog of Magog. And the Scythians, um, uh, which used to live in these mountains of southern Russia and in Ukraine, uh, you've got this uh, ancient Greek historian called Herodotus. And in his writings, he uses the term Magogian and Scythian interchangeably. Um, then you have uh, another, uh, this one is a Jewish writer, Josephus. He also talks about the Magogians as being this, uh, as the Scythians or Scythians. And the Chinese who built the Great Wall of China, it was called, one of the names of that wall was the Ramparts. Of Magog, 
because these horsemen who who were very ferocious they could shoot backwards they would descend from these russian steppes towards china to loot and pillage and and and, and take over and this wall was built to stop them and so people you know um think perhaps this is talking about the stronghold of the slavic people um uh, these tribes and meshech and tubal and magog these are all the sons of Japheth. You remember how Noah had three sons? Yes. Japheth, Shem, and Ham. Well, the, um, um, in when you go back to the people of nations, in Genesis chapter 10, 70 nations are presented as the archetypical um, you know, genesis of all the nations of the world. After the flood, there are 70 clans mentioned. And out of these 70 clans, all the countries and all the tribes and clans and nations of the world come from. So the Bible continues to kind of talk always from the point of view of the roadmap that it gives us in Genesis chapter 10. It always refers to one of the sons and grandsons and great-grandsons of Noah when it's talking about these end-time prophecies. So we always have to go back and go, who is it talking about? And so all of these characters, Meshech, Megah, Tubal, these are all the sons of Japheth. And when you go down, the next country mentioned here is I'll put, I'll turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. I'll bring you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly dressed, a vast assembly with breastplates and shields, all of them wielding swords. So with them will be Persia. So now Persia, which is the, the, the name of Iran was Persia all the way till 1925 when the father of the king who was overthrown in the revolution he changed to iran that's an easy one to to recognize and now the persians uh, the tribe of the persians was also a japhetite tribe the persians and the medes they were both the sons of japhet uh, the like one of the sons of japhet is madai and madai is of course the medes and so again you're still kind of in the japhetite world um and if you look at, like, uh, there's a language that people call Indo-European. And they go, look, India, Persian, Greek, and Latin seem to uh, come from a more ancient language because they have many words and grammatical structures that overlap. So linguists say, okay, there was a language that was spoken um, out of which came, you know, Sanskrit, Old Persian, Greek, and Latin. And they call this the Indo-European language. Well, I would I think that biblically speaking, that's Japhetite, because all of these people are Japhetites: Indians, the Northern Iranian Plateau, um, uh, Greek, the, the Javan. You know, the fountain was one of the sons of uh, uh, of Japhet, and and that's one of the or, the Ionians, right? That's where it comes from, Javan. Every time you see the word Javan in the Bible, it's translated as Greece into English, and he was one of the sons of Japhet, and so. This is the Indo-European uh, languages. I think they were essentially Japhetite tribes that were at the origin of it. So, so there is there is this kind of Japhetite uh, tribes mentioned. And after Persia, you have Kush put, and these are North African tribes. So Kush and put lived in North Africa, Libya, Ethiopia. Uh, it would be their modern-day countries. And these are the sons of Ham. Because Ham's children settled in North Africa. Perhaps his most famous son was Mezraim. And Mezraim is, the, is always translated as Egypt in all of our Bibles. And 
to this day, the Arabic word for Egypt is Mesr, and so it is in Persian. And, and, and in Hebrew, the modern term for Egypt, it continues to be Mizraim. So it was always known that the son of Ham, Mizraim, was the founder of Egypt. And again, and again, all of these tribes and, and nations that you're mentioning are the, the tribes that are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that will form this coalition to fight against Israel in the, the battle of Gog and Magog. And, the yes. Mag and Magog, you suspect, might be the Scythians, which were the peoples of the, the steppe land in, in southern Russia. Yes. Um, that, that's what, that's, I, you see, it's interesting because you know, we, we can't superimpose in our thinking what we're seeing happen in the world and try to fit it in the Bible prophecy. And, and so what, by deciphering these prophecies is kind of like looking at something, you know, through a unclear lens and gradually as it falls into place, then you go, there it is. So, um, there, the countries mentioned here all have reasons to attack Israel. So Gomer uh, is another one and Togorma finally. So Togorma is, um, the birthplace of the Turkish people called Turkmenistan today and about a thousand years ago the people of Turkmenistan came to Anatolia they conquered it and that's why we call it Turkey because the people from Turkmenistan came and took it over a thousand years ago and they gave their name to it and Gomer another one of the sons uh, the the Babylonian Talmud calls Gomer Germania you know and so um, again, it's an Indo-European. Um, other people see it as like, you know, let's say the other Meshech, um, Tubal, um, these can also be like the Russian, ex, like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, uh, all of the stands, you know. And it's interesting when the um, Charlie Hebdo uh, story happened uh, in Paris, um, there was more, there was at one million people came out among the Chechens and pro I was surprised when I was watching the news that the largest protests against that, against, uh, against this, for, for what these guys did, they went and shot the people who made, who made the cartoon of, of the Prophet Muhammad. It was in the Islamic regions of Russia that the greatest De demonstrations for it were held. I watched it on TV and always stayed in my mind. I was just talking to a Russian friend about this a few days ago because of all the Chechens that have come into Ukraine. And so the, there's this massive 27% of the Russian Federation is Islamic. Um, and, and the Chechens are a huge part of it. So, and that, and then, so the, the Russia comes in and starts to really... Um, replace the base of the Soviet Empire with a new base and and that new base at, becomes a lot of these Muslim countries so Russia becomes the patron the industrial patron so in the uh, 1967 war and the 1973 war Russia is the one that supplies all the weapons to the armies that are attacking Israel um, it starts to form uh, alliances with Persia with Iran which is the second country mentioned here and usually the second country mentioned is the country that is the best ally of the first one. And Russia and Iran have military alliances between themselves. 
um, that, that, that Russia would support Iran if it found itself in a war. And this is kind of um, interesting that, that these things exist in that region uh, between what vastly was described here, I would say, is a non-Arab Islamic forces. Um, whether it's the Turks, uh, the sons of Tagurma, whether it's the Persians, you know, these are non-Arab Islamic forces. Um, and then, of course, Northern Africa, I'm told that in the uh, many of the mosques in, in Ethiopia, for instance, and other places in Northern Africa, um, if you don't believe that you should take Israel down, you're kind of not a real Muslim. It's a very fundamental belief. And of course, uh, Libya, since the removal of Gaddafi, has become kind of a place for ISIS and all kinds of uh, lawless groups that gather. So there's this whole Islamic militancy that starts to come up. And um, Iran has a revolution in 1979 and puts in a uh, theocracy. So basically the priests become the government. And they bring their perception of the Middle East and their perception of Israel into their foreign policy because they believe this is their understanding of what God expects of them. And that's why instead of dealing with the internal economy of the country, they're always expanding their forces into the rest of the Middle East. And, and, and whatever money is given to them goes into that expansion because there is this religious perspective that the blessing over their governance will come if they carry out what they believe is the decrees of Allah. Okay, let me just uh, back up here. Um, so, the the tribes mentioned in Ezekiel 38, 39, that are to participate in this war of Gog and Magog against Israel, um, Russia, Turkey, Iran, uh, they're, they're not mentioned as such, but these are the modern-day versions. Um, and then Tubal would be like Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, all of the stands, you know. So he, Meshach and Tubal, you could also, you know, if Magog is actually the Scythian, so you've got like the heartland of Russia, and Gog is, would be Moscow in this sense, you know, the, the heart of Magog. Um, then, so some people go Meshach and Tubal, maybe it's Russia and Ukraine, but you've got... He, it, it says that Gog and Magog are the princes of Meshech and Tubal. And who is it that controls the Slavic people? The king of the Slavs is the Moscovites, and they control the stands. These right. what used to be the stands. Okay, so let's bring... And then North Africa, Ethiopia, right. Libya. Libya, right. So let's bring this prophecy, Ezekiel 38, 39, into recent events. So there's Russia invading Ukraine. Obviously, that dominates the, the geopolitical landscape right now. But there's some other things happening. At the same time, in the midst of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia takes some time out to deliver some missives to the state of Israel. Now, Israel, of course, has, has been sending um, uh, flights into Syria hundreds and hundreds of times to a strike against Hezbollah positions. Hezbollah are the Shia uh, proxy of Iran. They uh, they exist in uh, they exist in Lebanon and now they're in Syria. And uh, because Iran wants basically they're not they don't neighbor Israel, but Syria does. So 
Iran wants their proxy, the Hezbollah, to have a forward position to strike against their, their enemy, Israel. Yes. So, so Israel has been flying into Syria hundreds of times to, to, uh, to push them back. And Russia, who is aligned with Syria, has basically turned a blind eye up until now. Just, it's a delicate situation. Russia is allied with Iran. They are allied with Syria. But they're willing to, to, they have been up until now, willing to look the other way as Israel defends itself, pushing back the Hezbollah f from the border uh, in Syria. Yes. Except something has changed very recently. Now the Russians are telling Israel, stop it. Stop bombing Syria. Yeah, they're saying that, that they, they are considering that um, and also that they um, don't believe that Golan Heights belongs to Israel. So just before the invasion, a high commander from Russia came in, to Syria. And now we're seeing maybe why, because um, there was an article today in Guardian, and I've seen this yesterday as well, that they're recording, recruiting Syrian uh, mercenaries to fight in Ukraine. They're offering them 250, 300 U.S. a month to fight as soldiers in Ukraine. So maybe that's also why he came there. But while this was happening, just before the invasion, it, Russia suddenly turns around and says that it's thinking about changing its policy. So it controls the air of Syria. That's, the, that's Russia's role in Syria. Iran controls the land. And Russia controls the air, and Iran has brought, in addition to Hezbollah, its own IRGC positions uh, have been built um, in Syria. Actually, the Revolution Guard of Iran have strong positions in Syria, and that is mainly what Israel bombards, including you know uh, logistical supply lines and and IRGC positions. So, in that sense, Iran and Israel are kind of having these this this fight. But Israel can only do it because Russia allows them to come and use the airspace. So suddenly Russia says, no, I don't want you to do this anymore. I and mean, we were thinking this. And also, Bolan Haidt, you know what? That belongs to the Syrians, not to you guys. Which is basically a declaration of war as far as Israel is concerned. Right. We should point out that Israel took over the Golan Heights in that six-day war in 67. And it's of tremendous strategic importance because... The Golan Heights, as the name implies, is elevated ground. And if, and prior to the Six-Day War, Syria would, would place armaments on the Golan Heights and could use that to fire down on, on um, Israeli settlements and, and, and citizens. So Israel needed to capture the Golan Heights so that the, to prevent that from happening in any future war. So and also the supply of water that comes from the mountains into the Sea of Galilee. It's one. It's it, Syria could then cut that water supply as well if it controlled the Golan Heights. Um, so, but it's a huge change in in Russian policy now. Why did they do this? Did they do this as a warning shot? We didn't know that they were about to attack Ukraine when they put this out. It was in the Jerusalem Post that Israel was warned about about Golan Heights and about the airspace. Well. Um, was this a warning shot? Were they saying, look, when this conflict begins, make sure you're on the right side, because if you're not on our side, once this conflict is over, we're going to create problems for you in Syria. Is that Was this a warning shot to Jerusalem? 
or did it betray a darker and deeper intention from the Kremlin that may come out later that would then tie into this prophecy? Um, this prophecy says that God will put hooks in the jaws of Gog and Magog and pull them into the battle. And that usually is understood as pretext. That there will be a pretext that will draw them into this. And it says they come in looking for loot in this peaceful land that's, you know, uh, that the people are living in. So we have to see kind of what the actual pretext is going to be. So one possible pretext is this there is another prophecy it's only one verse but it's a very ominous verse in the scroll of isaiah it says an oracle concerning damascus behold damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins now what's interesting is that damascus the syrian capital is one of the oldest inhabited cities of the world continuously inhabited cities of the world it's never been a heap of ruins and so is it possible that Iran, which is now controlling the Syrian government as and, and the Syrian ground, and Russia, which is controlling the air, starts, there's a skirmish with Israel, and Damascus gets destroyed as part of this, and then this coalition blames Israel for the destruction of Damascus, which then gives them the pretext to launch this massive attack. This is only speculation. But it kind of ties into the presence of Russia. And, and, you know, who is it that brought Russia into Syria? A General Soleimani, the guy who was killed by Donald Trump. Um, you know, there all these protests in the Middle East. He was a very important person. And he, the, the, Putin was asked to come to Syria, and he said no. So Soleimani got in the plane, went and saw Putin. We don't know what he told him. But by the time the meeting was over, Putin had agreed to enter Syria. And so, you know, that's another something that brought them in, you know, right. in, into the midst of that. Um, so, so there's all of these ambitions. And you, you were saying that in the middle of the Ukraine war, other things are happening. Another thing that's happening during this Ukraine war that's kind of we're missing is that the Iran nuclear deal is being reactivated by the Biden administration. And this is going to give back over $100 billion of cash that belonged to the king of Iran that's in New York and the banks. This is going to be given back to Iran as part of this deal. Not only you know the sanctions are removed, and not only can oil be sold, and you know many people speculate that on the long run their nuclear program can move forward, uh, they saw what happens to countries that don't have nukes, such as Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi, and, and what happens to countries that have nukes, like North Korea and Russia. People kind of leave you alone. So there's there's an incentive to do that, but the money that is given will allow them to expand their Islamic militant adver adventures. And one last thing about the hordes, because we're talking about nations but I also see a lot of mercenaries coming out of these countries. For instance, um, right now, Ukraine and Russia um, are the breadbasket of the world. 25% of the wheat of the world comes from there. And right now, the Ukrainians are saying the Russians are occupying the wheat field. And if we don't, if we miss the, the farming season, there's not going to be a harvest next year. And 
the poverty that is going to be created, there are two countries whose people rely very much on trade with Russia and on the price of wheat. I mean, if your birth goes up a little bit, you might be able to afford here. But the people of Pakistan Afghanistan, that's very difficult for them. Afghanistan especially would be pushed beyond uh, the limit of poverty because of the Ukraine-Russia war, which would mean that if you want to get a job in Afghanistan, the only employer is going to be the Islamic warlords, the Taliban, who control the opium fields and who have the money to pay you and who are supported. The new Taliban are um, allied with the Muslim Brotherhood. The old Taliban was allied with the Salafis of Saudi Arabia, out of which came ISIS. But the new Taliban is allied with the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a much a larger and wealthier and international organization and they have an office in Doha, Qatar. The, the Taliban have an office in Doha, Qatar through which they are negotiating with Trump. And so um, the, there is, they're the main uh, guys who are going to be able to give you a paycheck in Afghanistan which then increases the number of mercenaries that would be available if such a warlord, because I see this as a battle of warlords. You know, if they rise and, and they have this pretext and they and they come looking for loot and looking for a changing world order, you know, um, in, from the Judeo-Christian uh, America, Western-led world order to a Russian-led uh, Islamic-based world order. Like, if that's the ambition to, to switch the the, the, the who's, who's on top. So, now... Could it be another country? Is this a, a Sla Slavic-led Islamic battle of non-Arab Muslim countries against Israel? And why is it different from Armageddon? Uh, we can get to that uh, whenever, you, whenever you wish. Well, um, let me just, yeah, let me, let's just jump right in there then. Because okay. we just have a few minutes left. Okay. Is, okay, before you can have the battle of Armageddon, you have to have the tribulation and you have to have the rise of the, you know the rise of the antichrist and so forth so right. it, it seems like the battle of gog and magog i mean that's like that's coming at us potentially quite quickly uh right. if all of these you know events currently playing out sort of coalesce uh so right. what is is gog and magog armageddon yes or no well i, I don't think so but i'll tell you why because in in verse 39 chapter 39 uh, it talks about uh, how, what happens when these armies come. They're defeated. And when they're defeated, it says that their arms will be burned for seven years as fuel for Israel. So there must be light nuclear weapons involved. And it says that the dead will be buried. And anyone who, who, who sees a bone can't touch it. They have to call these specialists who come and remove the bones. And bury them. So there seems to be nuclear stuff, and it talks about a seven-year decontamination period. And I think to myself, if Jesus had come with these angels to establish a new age, they probably have the means to get rid of problems like this quickly. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe this is how nature works. They're like, look, it's radioactive. It's going to take seven years. You know, it's like the rain is the rain. Or... So from that point of view, I feel this doesn't have the MO of the Messianic Kingdom 
because in the messianic kingdom there are no weapons um and, and adversaries you know live at peace with each other so i feel like that that description about the defeat and the seven years of purification of the land and the burning of the weapons for energy for israel and the fact that you know if you see a bone you can't touch it you have to touch these guys call these guys to come and remove the bone and bury it i feel it doesn't have the mo of the messianic kingdom okay so what what is the purpose then of this battle prior to Armageddon. Why is, and why is God telling us about it in Ezekiel 38, 39? Okay, I'll answer the second question first. Um, I think the reason God is telling us about it is because so that we're not afraid. God is saying, look, even 2,500 years ago, I saw this in great detail. I know about this. In other words, I'm in charge, not they are. They're not in charge, I'm in charge. And you can be safe in that sense, the sense of safety. God is in charge, God knows what's going on. And also, there's going to be many ways of understanding this. I want you to understand that these are the birth pangs that will lead to the utopia and that you can be comforted and edified that as all of this deep evil is coming to the surface, it's a time of judgment and removal. So it's like the cavalry is on the way, the cleanup crew is on the way, some a disease is coming out and being removed and it's under God's control and foreknowledge. So it's meant to be seen in that way. But as far as what is the result of it on the, on, the, on the global stage, well, this is one theory. These guys come, and these are like warlords challenging the, the, the world order. And now, the, if they win, then they have to duke it out with the other guys. But if they lose, and which they will, then the, then the Antichrist and the world order and the globalists can rise and say this is not the what no we have to stop this type of event from happening before as a result we will now take over and, and put into place essentially our imperial system that will be global yet you know the, these defeated countries defeated russia defeated persia will be part of it but now let's have to fit in and put their heads down they can't have the, be singing in a different tune the West is leading it, and China will be part of it. And so now we see a global structure, and people are craving peace and security, and they will buy into it 100%. The Antichrist system. The Antichrist system. And now the seven-year rule of the Antichrist can begin. This would be the battle that would usher in the reason for that kind of a system. This is only speculation. Remember that we're just like... Yeah, just kind of dreaming. The point is, there's a there are things happening today in Israel and the Middle East that God has foreseen, and that these are the birth pangs of a great era that's coming. That is for sure what we can take away. The details we're discovering as we go, so we're just speculating. Ali Siadatan, Think Again Productions. dot com. There you have it, the uh, the Battle of Gog and Magog, and uh, the prophecy of Ezekiel thirty eight thirty nine. Thanks so much, Ali. You're welcome. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs> <laughs>